0: If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 20, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 28 to 38. Acts chapter 20, we've been looking at Paul's final exhortation to the Ephesian elders there in Miletus. And so we've done kind of a three-part series on this particular passage. And this morning is going to be number three. It's Paul's final exhortation for the future. So we talked to them a little bit about his pastime with them. He encouraged them in the present. And now he's giving them some thoughts about the future. And so this is a farewell message again. And this is Paul's final exhortation's Uh, for the future. So we're looking at verses 28 to 38. Why don't you look at it with me and then we'll dive into our time together. Chapter 20 verse 28 says, "'Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock.' I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said all of these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that he would not see, they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship." Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to sing songs of grace, songs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray as we look at our text this morning here in Acts 20, that you would help us to continue to learn what it is that you want us to learn from Paul's address to these Ephesian elders. We desire to grow in our godliness. We desire to grow in humility. We desire to grow in our love for you and our love for each other, so do that work by your spirit in our hearts through our time together in the scriptures this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, just before the invasion of the Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy on what is well known as D-Day, taking place June the 6th, 1944, General Dwight D. Eisenhower addressed the troops. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon a great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and the prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely." But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 1941. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle and man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced the strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. And let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. That's pretty encouraging, right? To hear that from General Dwight D. Eisenhower as D Day was about to take place. But even more significant than defeating the physical enemies of America is defeating the spiritual enemies of God's church. And while D Day was a huge undertaking that began on the beaches of Normandy, 2000 years earlier there was a bigger undertaking on the beaches of Miletus. God's chosen general, the apostle Paul, was issuing his last words in his farewell message to the Ephesian elders. The gospel had established a beachhold in Ephesus, and Paul did not want to lose any ground. And so God would use these final words from Paul to these elders of this strategic foothold in a Gentile area to spread the gospel throughout Asia Minor. These elders had been trained, they had been equipped, and they are now being employed into a lifelong service for the, for the king of kings and for the lord of lords. These Ephesian elders are being summoned and now challenged in this final exhortation to fight the fight of faith. To never give in and to stand on guard for the church of God. This morning, I want to give you five challenges that Paul issued to the Ephesian elders in his final farewell message. We're talking about Paul's final exhortation for the Ephesian elders to be on guard into the future. Let's look at these five challenges together. Number one, he's saying to them, watch your own life. You must watch your own life. And this 1st subpoint under that heading would be be honest. That's your first blank. Be honest with yourself. We're looking at verse 28. We're in our third installment of Peter, or Paul, rather, address to the Ephesian elders. And in verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves, so you've got to be honest with yourself. And so as Paul begins to issue a final warning for how to provide for and protect the church of God, he starts with a challenge to first look within. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, to be on guard for yourselves. Dear church of Placerita, we must first watch over our own spiritual lives before we can adequately care for the spiritual health of others. And this is a firm principle we see throughout the Bible. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 13, verse 9, he said, but be on your guard. He said again in Luke 21, 34, Jesus said, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. This is especially true for anyone involved in spiritual leadership, not only to protect the flock, but to watch over your own heart. The first priority is always to be on guard for your own relationship with God first. Effective ministry is not a mere outward activity. It is an overflow of the deep, rich, vibrant relationship with God. And if an elder or a pastor is not developing that deep, vibrant, day-by-day dependence on the Lord, then he's not worthy to shepherd the flock. It's a high undertaking. It's a humble calling. It was John Owen who wisely wrote, a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. He's saying no matter what the public persona looks like of your church and your numbers and your ministries, a minister is what he is on his knees before God and no more. The first step again in being on guard has got to be self-examination, being honest with yourself, giving an examination of yourself. And after, after a whole chapter of exhorting young Timothy, Paul summarizes this warning in this way. Look at 1 Timothy. Turn there with me if you will over to the right. We see this idea again of watching yourself first. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 16. Paul has been encouraging Timothy. He's been uh, reminding Timothy of the strength and the responsibility that he has as a pastor elder. And then he says this in verse 16. 1 Timothy 4:16. He says, "Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist in this for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers now how easy it is sometimes for us i think particularly in our church like ours we're a bible church we like to focus on doctrine we like to hear expository preaching we want to get it right right cut it straight and we want to preach the truth as opposed to error and rightly so But just please notice that this verse does say, keep a close watch on yourself first, that that you would watch your own heart. How, How challenging that can be, how subjective that can be, how difficult that can be for you or I to take the time to actually do inventory within. I would suggest to you that it's actually much harder to watch your own heart and your own life than it is just to teach the text, It's harder because teaching the word is more of a objective, uh, more of a scientific approach of doing exegesis and exposition. But the idea of watching your own heart is that devotional openness and transparency before God. It's allowing others to even speak into your life. And it's more difficult because sometimes we don't see very well when we're looking at our own hearts first and yet we're being reminded this morning from Acts 20:28 20, and from this passage here in 1st Timothy 4:16 that it's necessary for a pastor for an elder in in in, in sequence for every Christian. Right? It's not like only the pastors and elders watch themselves and everybody else doesn't have to pay any attention, right? But he's saying especially those who are shepherding the flock of God have to look within their own heart. And so Paul is charging Timothy to examine his own life in light of the Scriptures and that Timothy needed to be sure to scrutinize his own life and his teaching to make sure that both honored the Lord, your, your life and your doctrine. If you don't have a solid moral life, then your doctrine doesn't matter in a sense because you've been disqualified, and the doctrine, of course, of scripture is always true and authoritarian uh, in and of itself, regardless of the man, but I'm just saying that the man who's preaching the word needs to understand that it's crucial to have his life right before God. And Paul addresses the same principle in 2 Timothy, you're there in First Timothy, turn over one book, 2 Timothy 2.21, he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So again, you've got to cleanse yourself. If anyone cleanses himself, then you're a vessel for honorable use. And since God uses clean and holy instruments, vessels of honor, self-examination and forsaking sin are essential for all leaders. And although God blesses his truth in spite of the preacher, he does not bless the unholy leader no matter what title or position he might hold if he is continuing in sin. Richard Baxter, the well-known Puritan pastor, addressed this concept in his well-known book, The Reformed Pastor. Listen to some of what this famous Puritan Richard Richard Baxter writes in in that work. He says, take heed to yourselves lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others, and lest you be guilty of, which, of that which you daily condemn. Will you make it your work to magnify God, and when you have done, dishonor him as much as others? Will you proclaim Christ's governing power, and yet condemn it and rebel it in your own life? Will you preach his laws, and yet willfully break them, If sin be evil, why do you live in it? If it be not, why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you venture on it? If it be not, why do you tell men so? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them and put them into such frights without a cause? Do you know the judgment of God that they who commit such things are worthy of death? and yet will you do them? Thou teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, or be drunk, or covetous, are thou such thyself? Thy makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God? What? Shall the same tongue speak evil that speaketh against evil? Shall those lips censure and slander and backbite your neighbor that cry down these and the like things in others? Take heed to yourselves, lest you cry down sin and yet do not overcome it, lest while you seek to bring it down in others, you bow to it and become its slaves yourselves. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. To whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or disobedience unto righteousness. O brethren, it is easier to chide at sin than to overcome it. And that's Richard Baxter's plea to pastors. And so when I read something like that, or our elder team reads something like that, hopefully we take... Take it to heart, right? How, how convicting that if you preach against sin, are you willing to preach against that same sin in your own heart, in your own life? Personal holiness is the requirement of true and powerful spiritual leadership. And God calls for holiness that is not just outward in the eyes of men, but true holiness is inward, so that you could say, together with Paul in 2nd. Corinthians 1.12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. So again, the challenge here that Paul is giving as an apostle is to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And he's saying, hey, look, in verse 28, you got to pay careful attention to yourselves. Guys, don't go into the the ditch of sin, right? Don't, don't fall into the temptation that you're preaching against. And so I think while that charge, again, is directly to the elders, it would certainly be for every Christian. And so let me ask you, how, how are you doing, church? How, how are you doing inside of your own hearts? Are, are you looking within your own soul? 1 Peter 4.17 says, "'For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God.'" And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we need to be diligent to look within our own hearts. And we must also learn, as we're looking within our own hearts, your second blank says to be transparent with others. To be transparent with others. I'm still just in the first part of verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Be transparent with others. One of the best ways to pay careful attention to yourself is to have others hold you accountable. While you are ultimately accountable to God... It is also good to be a part of a church that is willing to hold each other accountable. I'm talking about Principles like the verse in James 5.16 that says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Uh, this is the essence, uh, the, the, the essence of the first step of church discipline is that we would be transparent with one another. As Jesus said, if your brother sins, Matthew 18.15, if he sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so this is an idea, again, of being open, being transparent, to be vulnerable with others, to speak into some areas in your life where you may have blind spots. I was just teaching one of my kids how to drive a little bit yesterday and say, hey, watch out for the blind spots. Daddy, where's the blind spot? It's the spot you can't see. It's just right behind you to the other lane, and it's just, you can't see it in this mirror, and you can't see it in that mirror, and that's why you got to turn your neck like this and check out the blind spot. And it's just a reminder that each one of us have those blind spots, which is why we need to examine, but we also need others to help us examine our own hearts and our own lives so that we can Uh, encourage one another and that we can help each other. And so we must not also forget, your next blank, the idea of that there's an activeness, your next blank says be active in your sanctification. As you're watching your own life before God, you're being active as a part to play in your own sanctification. Now listen, I understand only God can make you clean, right? Only he can cleanse you of your sin. But nevertheless, we are commanded in the New Testament to take a part of our own sanctification. Consider Isaiah 1.16 says, "'Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil.'" Or consider this idea of cleansing yourself from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Or how about 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so, again, we're seeing here there's a part of your sanctification and your cleansing is you paying attention to your own heart. It's you confessing your own sin. It's you learning to put off ungodly habits and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to replace those ungodly habits with holy habits. you got to, all of this is incorporated in this idea of watch your own life. And, and you do that through confession, And you do that from adhering to God's word. You do that through sanctification also being a a group project together with one another's in the church. You know, we talk about in, in theology, we talk about how justification is monergistic So the idea of God saving you is completely a work of God. By grace, 100% by grace, you bring nothing to the plate when it comes to saving your own sin, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. That's, That's monergistic. There's one power working, God's power, upon you to justify you and to declare you righteous, even though you're guilty, but he does so because of Christ and because of the cross. It's monergistic. The doctrine of sanctification, we typically think of that progressive sanctification of growing in your Christian life, that's synergistic, S-Y-N, means together. It's together, there's two forces at work. God's at work in your sanctification, and you're at work in your sanctification. God's cleansing you, but you're called to cleanse yourself by confession. By coming under the waterfall of God's grace, by being transparent and open before God and before others. And this is what Paul is talking about, is you got to make sure your life is right with God, that you would be willing, he's saying to the Ephesian elders, to pay attention to yourselves. The second challenge Paul gives to the Ephesian elders is number two, to shepherd the flock. To shepherd the flock. Moving a little bit further, now in verse 28, your next blank, by the way, is no, who appointed you, you've gotta know who appointed you. Acts twenty twenty eight again, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. First of all, we got to know who appointed you. After making sure that his own life was in order, a leader's second priority is to shepherd the flock of God. And that care involves the feeding and the leading of the flock. And I want you to notice here, as he says in the middle of verse 28, that it's the Holy Spirit who made these men elders. There is no record in the New Testament of elders being nominated by the congregation, Some congregations would practice the ecclesiology of congregational rule or the whole church together making decisions. And I just want to let you know that there's not an example in the New Testament of elders being nominated by a congregation and then them being put up for a vote not saying if a church does that, that it's wrong or sinful. I'm just simply saying there's no precedent for that in the Bible. There's no elder nominations. There's no votes of affirmation in the New Testament. Again, if a church ch- uh, ch- chooses to do it that way, I-, I don't have a major problem with it. I'm just, I'm just saying the idea here that I'm trying to point out is that elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit. They're appointed by the Holy Spirit. The elders of a church are not ultimately appointed by men, but appointed by God. And the reason I think that's important is because it's a reminder to the elder that you're not ultimately responsible to men, you're responsible to God. God places that calling on you. God places that gospel truth in you. God gives you that equipping ability of the qualifications of an elder, and you're accountable to God. Remember, How is Paul and Barnabas, Paul is an apostle, Barnabas is a close associate with Paul, who earlier in the missionary journeys they took together, particularly that first one, that they appointed, through the Holy Spirit, elders at every church. That's Acts 14.23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So it was an appointment ultimately through prayer and fasting and by the Holy Spirit. Uh, later, Paul said to Titus, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in Titus 1:5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Again, part of the reason I'm pointing this out is not only is it in scripture here, the idea of the Holy Spirit was the one appointing those elders, but it's also a reminder here that too many times that we think being an elder is a popularity contest. We think it's about a good businessman who who seems to be an upstanding member of the community, who's shown leadership in a lot of areas of his oversight out in the secular world. And we think of him as being very prim and proper. And we think, well, that guy ought to be also running the church because he does a great job running his business. And we forget sometimes it's not, it's not about their financial stature or their, their education, right? It's about their character, And it's about a spiritual giftedness to be able to teach the word of God that makes an elder an elder. And it's just a reminder again that we're accountable to God about this. It's important that we know that those who have been appointed have been appointed by God to the office of pastor or or overseer, and they're ultimately accountable to God as those who will give an account. That's what Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So part of that Hebrews 13, 17 is a challenge to the congregation. Obey your elders, submit to them, let them do their job. And part of that challenge is to the elder team. Hey, you're going to give an account, just like every parent in here will give an account. Before God, how you parent your children, how you rear your children in the teaching and admonition of the Lord. Every elder will give an account before God. I'll I'll answer to God for how I faithfully attempt to discharge God's word in this pulpit and in shepherding conversations through counseling and discipleship and in small groups. And so we have been called by God, we're ultimately accounted by him, and we've been called to your next blank, shepherd those in your care. Shepherd those in your care. He's saying again that pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers to care for the church of God. The metaphor of caring for the flock as shepherds is often used to describe God's relationship to his people. It is a readily available one since sheep are helpless, timid, dirty, and in need of constant protection and care. The Old Testament frequently describes Israel as God's flock. Psalm 78:52. "Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Isaiah 40 verse 11, "He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms." That's an Old Testament picture of God being the shepherd of his flock. Israel, and then the New Testament takes that same picture and pictures the church as a flock with Jesus Christ as its shepherd. Even as Jesus says, is one of the seven I am statements of John ten eleven. Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep." First Peter two twenty five says, "For you were straying like sheep, but have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So we see this, this is a common idea here that Jesus is the chief shepherd and he has taken his flock and he is now dividing his flock into many smaller flocks. You have the universal church, all of those who are born again Christians belong to Christ's family, with Christ being the head of the church universally. And then you have local assemblies, local churches, where there are elders that have been appointed by the Holy Spirit to care for and to shepherd the flock of God individually in those smaller compartments. And so the Holy Spirit raises up overseers, under shepherds, who are responsible again to shepherd their flocks. And the word shepherd here, we've mentioned a few times here recently, is the word poimain poimain. it's a comprehensive term encompassing the entire task of a shepherd. And, and in order to properly shepherd the flock, an elder has to be able to first know the flock. Right? If you don't know who's in your care, how can you care for them? And so that's part of the reason that we emphasize church membership being a more of a formal agreement between an elder team and a congregant to say, hey, are you here or are you there? Because if I'm going to come help you, love you, shepherd you, oftentimes what a person will say if they don't want that is they'll say, well, oh, I'm not a member. You know, like, I, I, I'm not a member. So don't, don't, get off of me is what they're saying. And what we're saying in church membership is we need you to be accountable to God by being under a local elder team that would rightly and humbly and, 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 and Christ, in a Christ-like manner help know you, So that they can, another aspect is not just knowing you, but to lead you. You need to be led. I need to be led. I'm not saying that uh, as an elder we're not led. We're also led by each other, by Christ, by scripture, by the principles that we have conviction to follow, like a text like this. But we're called to lead you, to lead you in our annual business meeting to lead you with all the affairs of the church, to lead you with our our budget and our ministries, to lead you in your own spiritual life. And I'm not saying that you have to follow us exactly, like there's some type of cult going on here. I'm just saying we're trying to lead by example, by humble service and adherence to the word of God. And there's hopefully an example that you would be able to follow the leaders of your church in that sense. There's the responsibility an elder has as a shepherd to protect you to protect you from false doctrine, to say, hey, watch out for the teaching that's going on in the world that's starting to really attack what is the gospel. And what is the social gospel? And what about all these other issues about being woke and so forth and so on? Just be careful. We're not saying there's not things to consider and think through uh, biblically, but we're saying be careful that you don't buy into some type of false doctrine or false emphasis uh, that that begins to move us away from scripture. And then I would say the main part of the task of being a shepherd would be feeding the flock, feeding the the word of God and teaching it and preaching it without apology to feed the sheep. I mean, if you don't feed the sheep, they become malnourished. And if you don't feed the sheep, then they could wander off and eat poisonous things. And if you don't feed the sheep, they starve, and eventually they die. And so I would say the primary task in many ways of an under-shepherd of the Lord's flock is to feed the sheep. And sadly, many under-shepherds fail to do that Today, they, they seem content to allow their sheep to wander from one barren wasteland to another. The, the tragic result is a spiritually weak flock ready to eat the poisonous weeds of false doctrine or to follow false shepherds who deceitfully promised them greener pastures while leading them into a barren desert. And that's where 1 Peter 5, that we read during our pastoral scripture reading this morning, lays out so well that exhortation, First Peter 5, two through four, that elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. And so that text goes together with this text about what it means to shepherd the flock of God. And in so doing, coming back to our Acts 2028 20, verse, we gotta also, your next blank, we gotta remember the cost. We gotta remember the cost as we read here in the end of verse 28 that, that the Holy Spirit has made those elders overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood he obtained with his own blood. Who shed his blood? Well, certainly not God the Father, for he is spirit, not flesh, but it was God the Son who shed his blood, as 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 reminds us, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And so I believe in Acts twenty twenty eight when he says, which he obtained with his own blood, it's a general reference to the Godhead. And in the Godhead, obviously, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think it would be right for you not to think that the Father shed his blood, but that he sacrificed by sending the Son, who in, indeed did shed his blood, that you and I could be forgiven and brought into his family. And so the church is now as recipients of that blood of Christ that was shed has become the most precious reality on earth why because the most precious gift was paid in order for the church to be purchased with the blood of Christ himself and that thought would 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 demand that every leader treat the church as a precious fellowship because the church was, was ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. The Lord Jesus set the example of loving concern for the church, which all leaders must follow. And Paul describes this sacrificial love for the church that Christ had in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. In that familiar passage, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her talking about Christ in the church, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he, that's Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and without blemish. So again, the the idea here is there's a precious commodity of the blood of Christ that was shed for those who would repent and believe. And so the under-shepherd must have that same concern, that same concern for the purity of the church, just as the great shepherd did, that those who truly value the church will shepherd their flocks by feeding them with the word of God and by faithfully leading them. And this brings us To our third challenge that we see here, Paul given to these Ephesian elders, number three, guard against false teachers. Guard against false teachers. He warns them. Your next blank says, fierce wolves will come from outside the flock. Look at verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so, as we have mentioned, it's not enough only to feed the flock, but a faithful shepherd needs to protect the flock as well. And Paul had in mind that no no doubt that after his departure, false teachers would indeed threaten the Ephesian church, just as they had already threatened to infiltrate some of the other churches that were planted with legalism and with even antinomianism. And so whenever the truth is preached and proclaimed, Satan also can be expected to counter with his lies of false doctrine. And so Paul's alarming description of false teachers here is that they can be as fierce as savage wolves, that they won't be willing to spare the flock. And it reminds us certainly of the same warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 7, 15, and 16 when Jesus used that expression about fierce wolves. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus again in Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And when the Bible talks about false teachers, it talks about those who distort the gospel. That's the very definition of a false teacher is they preach a false gospel. They're not teaching faith alone and Christ alone, but they begin to teach and, and and. Uh, focus, emphasize other issues outside of what it truly means to be saved. And this is is the same warning which has already been issued to the church that Paul planted in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 11.4, it says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And that's a rebuke. He's like, don't put up with it. Don't take a different Jesus. Don't take a different gospel. Don't take a different message than the one that's been preached from the scripture. And this has taken place as well in Galatia, Galatians 1.6, where Paul writes, I'm astonished that you have so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So whenever I think of that, you're like, well, what do you mean a different gospel? I'm talking about a gospel of works where you have to do something to be saved Or we're talking about a gospel of antinomianism, that means without the law, which means you don't have to repent in order to be a Christian and you can live and celebrate an ongoing sinful lifestyle and still call yourself a Christian. You know what that's called? That's called a different gospel. The gospel calls us to repentance, it calls us to a full denial of ourselves, taking up our cross daily and follow Him. It's not a gospel of works, it's a gospel of grace. But grace transforms. And as grace transforms your heart, it changes your desires. And your greatest desire is no longer to continue in some sin, but your greatest desire is to please your master, to live for him. And when you fall, because you will, I will, we all fall, then we confess it and we repent it and we turn from it and we ask God to help us not continue to walk in that way. And that's the very definition of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who loves Christ, And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And therefore, we don't have the right to come to Christ and say, I love you, but I'm going to live in my sinful lifestyle, and I don't care what you say about it. You don't have the right to do that. That's a different gospel. And that's why we're so firm about preaching when it comes to morality, because that has to do with our sanctification, and we're not trying to uh, push away a lost sinner. We're just trying to be faithful to preach Christ. And when we preach Christ, he says, but I, if I be lifted up, would draw all men to myself. So don't preach a different faith. Don't preach a different gospel. Don't try to cower to the world's demands. Keep preaching the gospel truthfully from God's word. We've got to be on guard. And this is what this point is saying. The next blank there says, defection will occur from within the flock. Defection will occur from within the flock. The flock, again, verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So again, these false teachers come from within, from within the church, and they seek to distort and to twist the gospel. Again, the key here in verse 30 is it's not from without, it's from within. And that's where it scares me sometimes because I'm like, all right, I'm, we're ready for this Without. You know, when the, when the without people come, the Roman Catholic, the Mormon, the Jehovah Witness, the person who fully embraces sexuality, sinful sexuality, and says, I'm a Christian too. You know, we're, we're like, hey, we're ready for that. We're, you're not going to fool us. You're not going to take us away from Scripture. It's when there's someone within. It's when there's somebody that's in the own church that's an evangelical, that claims to be a Christian, And much of what they say seems to be so good and so right, and they're winsome, and they're popular, and they write books that we are sometimes wanting to read to see what are they saying. And if we're not careful, it's that person. It's that person that begins to to defect from the true gospel and to influence leadership. And you say, Adam, that, that stuff happens? Yeah, it happens. It's, it's in the later letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, who was then the pastor of Ephesus, where Paul condemned the false teachers who had risen from within the Ephesian congregation and even names them by name, that they need to now be disciplined. It's the idea of the book of Jude. Turn, turn to Jude with me if you want to see this warning. It's at the very end of your Bible, right before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, right before Revelation, the book of Jude. It says this, Jude chapter 10, uh, sorry, there's only one chapter, verse 10, Jude 10, uh, Jude 10 and following, check this out, he's warning about false teachers, and he says, but these people, so the book of Jude, verse 10, but these people, referring to false teachers, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So he's just illustrating three people that were false teachers, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, and they all died. Well, Cain didn't die, God put a mark on him and protected him. But but Balaam was was definitely exposed for his error, and then all the sons of Korah died, right, when they opposed Moses. And he's saying, These people were within. They were people that you would have thought, like, well, they, they won't fall, and yet they all fell. They are, verse twelve, these are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. So it's kind of like these guys are brash. They're they're in your church. They're they're at your fellowship table, they're eating together with you with no fear, not hiding anything, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. So we say, hey, if you watch them closely, they don't have, there's there's no water in those clouds, there's no fruit on those branches, like real fruit of the spirit, from God's word. They're twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So it's a passage saying, watch out. They're hidden reefs in your love feast. They're right there, under your nose, in your church. So we gotta be on guard, Paul, to the Ephesian elders. is like, be on guard. Be on guard for the flock, from attacks both from outside and from inside the church the under shepherds must be on the alert they must be vigilant it was commentator charles jefferson who writes the eastern shepherd was first of all a watchman he had a watchtower it was his business to keep a wide open eye constantly searching the horizon for the possible approach of foes He was bound to be circumspect and attentive. Vigilance was a cardinal virtue. and alert wakefulness was for him a necessity. He could not indulge in fits of drowsiness, for the foe was always near. Only by his alertness could the enemy be circumvented. Just saying, that's the mindset we got to have. We got to have a watch on our own church. When I lived in Texas, I had a friend who managed a Walmart. Or excuse me, I should say a Walgreens, a pharmacy, a Walgreens. And he was the manager. He's the store manager. And he was in our small group. And I'd ask him from time to time, hey, man, how's it going selling drugs every day? You know, how's, how's it going? you got caught yet? You know, I'd kid with him and talk with him. And, uh, and I'd ask him about how's the store going? You know, what, what else do you guys do in your drugstore? And I learned all kinds of stuff about, the, about uh, the pharmacy. And he told me one day, he said, uh, hey, Adam, you know what? We're always looking for better employees because I had to fire another employee last week. So why, why did you have to fire another employee? Well, they were stealing from the store. He's like, studies show that our main enemy is our own employees who shoplift and steal from our own stores. Not the people who come from outside the store. It's my staff that we have to set up cameras and keep an eye on because more employees steal from their own business who have a job there than those who don't have a job there. And I just thought, you know what, what a, what a reminder. It's, it's people within the church that we have to keep an eye on. And I don't mean we necessarily walk around with this evil suspicion like, I'm watching you. You know, I'm watching you. You said something. It was a little bit off. You're a false teacher. You know, but I'm saying that we do examine, exhort, encourage, and certainly watch those. Because this is of a serious nature, back to this text, be on guard. Don't let them have their way in your church. That's what he's saying to the Ephesian elders. Be on the alert. Your next blank says, be alert for the future challenge to the flock. Be alert for the future challenge for the flock. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So he's there in Ephesus for about three years, and he was like, man, I've been teaching. I've been admonishing. That word admonish here is the word nutateo. Biblical counselors will know that word well. It literally means to counsel. It means to warn, to instruct, to exhort, to encourage, and that's how we're to teach. It's that constant idea of correction. Not, not necessarily the one big rebuke and get away, but it's like, let me help you let me teach you, let me help you move through this in a way that there would be correction and building up and reproving and correcting with the idea of them getting it right. And that's the idea here is that we want to be warning everyone, admonishing everyone so they don't fall in the deep end. We want to we caution them with great tears. Paul even has this, this physical relationship that he's moved emotionally to, to plead with them. Like you would plead with your own children. That you don't want them to go away from the, the teachings of Christ. You know, I'm imagining a parent with teenage kids who are 16 or 17 or 18. They're about to go to college maybe. And you're pleading with them because you're not sure where that kid really is. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. Either way, you're pleading with them. Don't go the way of the world. Don't go by the adulterer's house. Don't go out at night to the party that is not going to honor God. Don't do it. Hold firm to God's word. Hold firm. Don't let them Take over. That's what he's saying here about being on guard. Let me move on. Two more. Number four, set before you the word of his grace. So the way to do this would be certainly setting before us God's word. We are entrusted. Your next blank. We are entrusted to God. We are entrusted to God. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul is saying, I commend you to God. I set before you God. I, I entrust you to God. Notice Paul did not commend them to other human leaders. Paul did not commend them to the apostles. He did not commend them to other elders. Paul commended them to God. Again, the reminder, first and foremost, you're accountable to God. Again, Acts 14.23 says, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. So we are committed to God, and we are also, your next blank, we are to obey the word. We are to obey the word. He's entrusting them to God and to the word of his grace. This would be to the scripture, that through trust in God, uh, that you would also look to God's word, that you would be obedient to God's word, that while we don't worship the word, We understand that the Word was in the beginning, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is also a reference to Christ. It's to the Word, Jesus, it's to the living Word, and it's to the Scripture, and while the Scripture is not part of the Holy Trinity, there's still the idea of there's authority, and there's the source of, of strength that comes from the scripture that we want to read and to study. God builds us up through his holy word. It's the word which is that source of spiritual growth. First Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you had heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There's 2 Timothy 3.16. We know all scriptures breathed out by God to bring about that, that correction and that training for righteousness. And so we are commended. Paul's commending them. I got, he, he, I'm not going to be with you forever. I'm about to leave, but you got God and you got his word. And make sure you depend on the word of God. And we are, your next blank, we're built up and rewarded. We are built up and rewarded. He said, I'm commending you to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those all those who are sanctified. So the, the, the reward here is that inheritance that you have heaven, that you have been given uh, eternal life. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is part of what the Word brings to us. It brings us that understanding of the reward, the inheritance. The Word is the source of our assurance, convincing believers that they have an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Whereas weak, struggling believers who lack assurance of salvation need to be fed the Word of God so that they might say, Together with 2 Peter 3.18, that they're growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from the word of his grace that's, that's bringing us that assurance. And then the fifth and final challenge given to the Ephesian elders is to work hard to be exemplary. Your last uh, couple of blanks here. Do not covet. Work hard to be exemplary. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. One of the hallmarks of a false teacher was the love of money. And they would do what they did for pay. And they would sometimes receive more pay than was due them. And Paul constantly has been reminding us throughout the book of Acts, hey, I came to work. I was a tent maker. I, I toiled day and night. My my reward is heaven. I'm not recovering your money, your gold, or your silver, your clothes, your apparel. He was a godly example of someone who didn't hold firm to this world. Be responsible, your next plank. be responsible and bless others. We see incredible responsibility where you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. So Paul, again, wanted to work, to set an example, to provide for himself, Second Thessalonians 3, 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Again, one of the main reasons Paul is doing that is to be different than the false teachers. So there was no accusation against his character. And then verse 35, your next blank is, giving is better than receiving. In all these things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What What a great reminder here of the blessing of giving that we that we're able to give we work so that we can give and that's what Paul did he worked so that he could give help the weak we understand that giving is a is a spiritual discipline it's a spiritual act of worship and Paul was saying hey look that was what I was doing I was helping the weak I was remembering that it is more blessed to give than to receive that's actually a quotation of Jesus which is not recorded in the gospels which is the only time that we have a direct quotation of the Lord Jesus Christ saying something that was not in the Gospels, and that gives significant weight to the truth in which it reveals. The Gospels no more contain every word that Jesus spoke during his earthly ministry than they do all of his deeds. Only the divine-inspired Bible, however, contains those words and deeds that he wished for us to remember, and this was one of them, that the Holy Spirit sovereignly placed on Luke's heart to write in the Gospel of Acts as it was said by Paul that they remember that Jesus said that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Lastly, to build close relationships. Again, we're talking about an example. Work work hard to be exemplary as an elder. Build close relationships, 36 to the end of the chapter. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So you can tell here there was great affection that Paul had for these Ephesian elders. It wasn't just a professional ministry. He cared for them. He wept with them. They wept with him, as we look at our take home here, do you spend more time studying the Bible than checking on your own heart? One takeaway for sure from the beginning of our message. Do you spend more time in study of the Scripture or in study of your own heart? Maybe those things should be a little bit more balanced. I'm not saying don't study the Scripture, I'm just saying check out your own heart, examine your own heart. Do you think it's possible for false doctrine to ever infiltrate this church? You know, I, I think it would be easy for us to say, I don't think so. You know, we have a master's seminary graduate. We're never going to falter. You know, and it's like, well, look, I'm I'm, I'm not perfect. Our elder team's not perfect. We all have to make sure that we're not allowing false doctrine to ever infiltrate our church. Do you immerse yourself in God and in the word of his grace? That's what's going to keep you firm. And then last, do you seek to be an example to others? Do you seek to be an example to others? Let's, uh, let's close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word into this text. So much here, so much to think about, to pray for wisdom to apply in a way that would honor you, in a way that would help us to be faithful shepherds and to be faithfully shepherded. Thank you that you've given us a manual on how to do church leadership, and as members of a church, accountability and transparency. And pray that you would help me and our elder team to grow in these areas where we've been challenged and convicted about this morning. And we pray for our congregation that you would help us equally so be more than ready to hold us accountable, to look within our own hearts and lives, to seek to shepherd, to love and serve each other as godly examples. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.